Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. My guest today is Leah Brooks, and today we'll be discussing why infrastructure costs so much to build in the United States. Leah is an associate professor in the Trachtenberg School of Public Policy and Public Administration at George Washington University, as well as the director of the Center for Washington Area Studies. She's a co-author, along with Zachary Lisko, of a 2019 paper tracking the rise in infrastructure costs between the 1960s and the 1980s, simply titled Infrastructure Costs. Leah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jim. Let's start off by just looking at what sort of shape American infrastructure is in. I don't know if you have any hard views of that. I think most people are under the impression that we're in really bad shape in kind of absolute terms, and we're also in really bad shape compared to Europe and, and China and some other countries. Do you, do you have a strong sense about what uh, about the condition of American infrastructure? Well, I can't say from my research, because that's not what I've done, but as a traveler, um, I think I, it's pretty clear that when you go in a U.S. airport, they're generally less nice than a European airport or an Asian airport, and the sidewalks and the roads are worse, and the uh, we seem to suffer more with water and sewer infrastructure problems than Europe. I think that's probably on the whole true. Now, what your paper does find uh, is that from the 60s to the 80s, we started spending a lot more on interstate highway construction. And from that, I mean, I'm trying to figure out, certainly we have a sense, I think maybe you have a sense that it infrastructure in this country it costs a lot. Uh, maybe it also, you know, takes too long. And what got me sort of interested in that in your paper was that I'm trying to, as I'm trying to figure out why that is, I think your paper has maybe have some bearing on it. So what happened? Why did, why did that spending per mile on interstate highway construction, why did it triple from the 60s to the 80s? Yeah, so I think this is the, this is the sad part, right? I think we mostly agree that the quality of U.S. infrastructure is lower, but what we show in this paper is that at least for highways, and I don't think there's any reason to think that highways are unusual, that we pay a lot more for it. Um, you know, we don't do an international comparison directly in this paper, but others do and suggest that you, the U.S. is an outlier, you know, even among developed countries, the U.S. is an outlier in costs. Um, so in this paper, what we do is I think that we are able to reject a couple of reasonable hypotheses for why costs are increasing and suggest a few that have explanatory power. And I think there's a lot more work to be done to sort of push on the ones we think are important, but maybe I should, I can start with the ones that we just- Yeah, let's start with which ones do you think have some explanatory power? We don't wanna go overboard by saying this one thing accounts for a hundred percent, but which ones do you think are, 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 are certainly worth considering as, as having some, um, yeah, some significant me, bearing? Let me tell you the first two that people often think that are true, but I don't think are true. Okay, that's um, And those are, First, people say, well, you know, maybe as you build the interstate over time, it, you, people just built the interstate in places that were harder and harder to build over time. So, of course, you're, you're going to see costs increasing, but that's not really because it costs you more to build a mile of interstate highway. It's just because you were building more difficult miles. And we just don't see any evidence of that at all. 
first, because when we look at spending per mile, we're able to control for, we control for the three most important determinants of physical highway cost, which is how urban the area is, um, how steep the area is, and whether or not the freeway crosses water, like how watery the area is. And when we control for these, we still see this really large increase in cost. So I just, I don't think those physical determinants are an explanation. Another explanation, I think that's broadly popular, and honestly, I thought was probably true when I started this project, um, was that the underlying materials and labor costs were increasing. And here again, there's just no evidence that per unit material costs or per unit labor costs are increasing over the period. I mean, the price of concrete per unit is pretty flat from the 60s onward. The price of asphalt per unit, pretty flat in real terms from the 60s onwards. It's not that they haven't increased, but you know, maybe they've increased by, you know, suppose they've increased by 10%. We're talking about a 300% increase here. So those are just small potatoes. Um, and so we're not saying that the, the total amount of labor, total amount spent on labor hasn't increased. That's certainly possible, but it's not because you're paying, we don't see any evidence that it's because you're paying individual laborers more money. Mm-hmm. All right, so I think those are the two we think just, th- those two explanations are just not true. And that leads us to, okay, what could uh, Now we've created, we've created a sense of drama. We've That's right. Drama. What, what okay. indeed are the, are the key? Are you ready? Are you yes. ready, listeners? Okay, yes. listeners, yes. Here's, here's what we think in this paper. We have two sort of prime explanations. The first is that, and, and this is a pretty standard economics explanation, and it's that people get richer, and they want when they get richer, they want more stuff. And wanting more stuff can come in all kinds of varieties of forms, and if you get richer, you might want a nicer highway. And you know what's a nicer highway? A nicer highway is a highway that has a noise wall so that if you're living near the highway, you don't have to um, hear the noise of the freeway. And I think the noise wall also helps, uh, helps, helps the environmental issues that are associated with freeways. Um, so as you get richer, um, you know, we see this in economics across all kinds of domains, not just highways, but healthcare, certainly. Yes, healthcare. I mean, and, and uh, you know, like you want a nicer house. As you get richer, you want a nicer car. You, you buy fancier groceries. You do, you know, you do it in all kinds of things in your life. It's nothing special about interstates. But we think that's part of it. You know, people in the United States have gotten wealthier, thank God, since the, since the 1960s. And so part of this increase in spending, we think, is associated with an increase in wealth. But we think that's also only part of the explanation. And the reason I say that is because this increase in income impacting increase in costs is almost entirely associated with the decades 1970 onward. So we, even though there's a really substantial rise in personal income in the 50s and 60s, we just don't see it hitting costs in the same magnitude as it does 70s onward. Uh, that's okay. what, uh, uh, and, th- and th- this is a fascinating point. So what happened? What, what happened to that sort of that, that, that pivot point that we didn't really see it in the 50s and 60s? Again, incomes are going up. Uh, some people, you know, like to, you know, blame unions, but we had strong unions, incomes going up, but we didn't really see it till the 70s. So what happened? Okay. So what, what Zach and I, Zach, my co-author and I mm-hmm. term this movement that we think occurs in the 70s and is important for interstate highways, but I think it's important much more broadly for sort of understanding um, 
understanding American culture, understanding American politics is what we call the rise of citizen voice. And we turn, we make this term citizen voice to describe a set of changes in social movements, judicial doctrine, and statute. All of these things, three things together combine to empower citizens in decision-making. And empowered citizens can make the government do things, maybe things that the government wouldn't have wanted to do before. Um, one way to think about this in the most economic way possible, in economics, we say that you can, we, we would like the government to internalize externalities, which means we'd like the government to understand the costs that its actions are causing to people harmed by its actions. And we would like the government to take those costs into account. And I think the, the most positive view of citizen voice is that it, it forces the government to do that. It forces, to take, it forces the government to take environmental costs, social costs, dis costs of disparate impact, um, all these kinds of costs into account when it's making decisions. But I, I, I think what Zach and I suspect is happening is that the government is having to go beyond that. It's not just taking these sort of broad societal costs, the kind of costs we'd want the government to take right. into account in this decision-making. It's actually taking into account costs that are private benefits to individuals that we don't think the government should be taking into account. Um, so we think it's this rise of citizen, this rise of citizen voice um, that compels this, this really substantial increase in costs. Um, and if you want, I'm happy to talk about you know, like what's what's underlying that? Because I no. think it might be a little. Well, yeah. So there's two things definitely uh, underlying it, but um, so, but just a bit about the, the mechanisms uh, that helped empower that you know, that that sort of citizen voice movement. It just wasn't people, uh, you know, you know, protesting outside outside some congressman's office or some somebody's office. That the role of citizen voice was actually incorporated into regulations where the regulations helped give them, uh, helped ha make sure that officials had to take that citizen voice into consideration. So what was happening is sort of on the regulatory front uh, that merged with this citizen voice movement? Yeah, so I think a great example is the National Environmental Policy Act, which was passed in 1969. And I, I hesitate to talk about this because I use this as an example because I don't, I don't intend to demonize environmental regulations, which I think, you know, in many cases serve a valuable purpose, you know, forcing the government to take into account costs they should take into account, but it's a very easy example to understand. So the, Envi the National Environmental Policy Act passes in 1969, and the day after it passes, the Environmental Law Institute is founded. And the, the, the whole purpose of the Environmental Law Institute is to sue under the cause of action that's granted by the passage of the National Envir Environmental Policy Act, NEPA. Um, so basically, and that is, that's not, NEPA is just one of many examples of statutes that pass in that era that give citizens the ability to, um, to sue when they think that the government isn't faithfully following out sort of the statutory requirements. There's also judicial decisions in the same time that Zach, my legal co-author, can speak to better than I can, but that basically, again, allow citizens to sue if they think that the um, executive agency isn't faithfully following the statute as Congress intended. So in, in uh, 
So then how did that manifest how does that manifest itself in the higher cost? If you, if you want to stick with this or the NEPA. Uh, yeah. So, so 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 then so the so now it's now you know due to regulation, they they you know uh, uh, policymakers have to take into account citizen voice. And so then how does that translate into higher costs? Yeah, it's a great question. So here's here's what we think is going on. Um, you know, we don't we have some limited evidence. I mean, what what we think is going on is that the government has to change change its pattern of behavior and spending in a way to satisfy those who are able to make noise. And you know what's very what what's suggestive in our paper is you know we see this increase in in costs in places where incomes increase the most. And if you think about who is most able to um, execute on their ability to to speak to government, right? That's people with money. Um, the, you know, the more money you have, the more you're able to, um, you know, move these levers of power to sue, to hire a lawyer, to have a neighborhood association that it can afford to hire a lawyer. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that um, it's certainly not true that the only types of people who sue under these laws are wealthy, but I would strongly suspect that there is a high correlation <laughs> between between income and and lawsuits in these in these areas. So okay, so what these what what the regulation allows is it allows for lawsuits or even the th- even the threat of lawsuits, right? So the threat of a lawsuit can make you a could make you write a more careful environmental plan. It could cause you to um, have maybe more hearings than you would public hearings than you would otherwise have about projects or do hearings in a way that might be more costly or preemptively take into account concerns so as to avoid lawsuits or hire environmental consultants, which is basically this entire industry that didn't exist before the 1970s. Sort of, it sort of popped it. This whole sector, this industry really popped it. You mentioned one uh, one organization, but it certainly wasn't the only one that seemed to oh, view NEPA not. as like uh, as as the green flag waving go. Yeah, um, but I think NEPA is, you know, one example of many different types of statutes passed at this time that give people sort of the ability to delay and derail projects. Oh, well, let's get to the under. So it's not just that one. So you mentioned sort of the underlying cause. Why, why did why did these why did these regulations why did this movement sort of pop up when it did? Um, now that we have less of a good answer to. Um, that one, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I suppose one simple answer is just that people start becoming more concerned about the environment, right? But it's not just that. I think that's part of it, but that's not really a full explanation. I mean, I think in Europe, people care more about the environment than we do here, probably. And I think in many ways they get better environmental outcomes from their projects, but they get them in a way that is much less costly. I think they have, in general, a less protracted public comment period. And once the government makes a decision about a project, the decision is usually final. Um, Here in Washington, D.C., there are local projects I know that stop and start and have substantive modifications during the project um, because because of complaints from citizen groups. And starting, stopping, delaying, all of those are costly. And 
if that doesn't make sense how it's costly, you can think of a contractor who's bidding on a project. And if you are not sure about how long the project is going to take, you're going to charge more for the project because you're going to build in that risk on the delay into your initial, into your initial pricing. Um, now this is 50 years ago. It, it seems like we <laughs> should have figured out figured out that there might be an issue uh, with this over the past half century. Um, but is it, but it seems like it's as much a problem today, um, if, assuming that you view this as a problem, um, as it was then. So why, why, yeah. why aren't we fixing this? Well, I think there are a lot of winners, Jim. That's, that's my guess, if, you know. And you could always see yourself as a potential winner, even if you're not a winner today. Like suppose you, I live near a metro line that's getting built very, very slowly, in part because of citizens who are speaking up, saying that they're concerned about the impact of the metro line on their literal backyard, um, which is absolutely within their right to do. Um, but you would probably think that they shouldn't have 10 years over which to extend that right to complain. Um, and, you know, you might think, oh gosh, I wish I had that Metro line now, but I still wouldn't be in favor of changing these laws because what if they decide to run a Metro line behind my house? Then I want to be able to protest about the Metro line behind my house. So I think, I think that's part of it. Um, I think it's also, I think it's a really difficult it's like, it's like changing the direction of an aircraft carrier because there are all these parts and fixing one part alone is not enough. Um, you know, even if you, I don't think even if you got rid of NEPA, you would see a substantive change in this problem because NEPA is one of many, um, you know, one of many statutes that cause this. Um, and I think we now have a, a much more litigious system. So that's part of it. Um, I think it is also in part due to this law, um, you know, change in law that the Supreme Court decision that said that, that citizens have a right to sue executive branch agency. So all of these things together require some kind of monumental change. Well, I, I guess if that's, if you're, if you're, if you think that the U.S. has a substandard, um, has substandard infrastructure, and you're you're excited to hear that. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna spend a lot to improve it. And if you take climate change seriously, and you think that we're gonna need to be building things, whether it's uh, windmills or nuclear power plants, something, it seems to me that you that one might think this is an issue. If if all, doing all of that is going to be yeah, longer I than it might be otherwise, more expensive than it might be otherwise. I, maybe that is the catalyst to think about what we're doing here, this kind of intersection between citizen voice and a society that seems pretty litigious. Yeah, so I, I will say as an addendum to my previous answer, I think- another, but Yeah, I want my bullet trains. I want a hyperloop. <laughs> I also would like, I would really love a bullet train, Jim. I'm totally on board with that. Um, yes. Okay, so one another reason I think that we don't actually see a lot of pressure um, on politicians to modify the systems that lead to high costs is because it's really hard to observe the high costs. So I had a conversation, this is at a conference I went to with a senior official from the Federal Highway Administration who said to me, yeah, you know, we don't actually know how much each section of highway costs us to build. 
we know how much money goes out the door. Like we know how much money we're spending in total, but we can't tie that spending to individual sections of highway. So they just don't have a, they don't have a way to even evaluate the costs. And I think that's true. That's true pretty broadly. We just do not have, you know, in a lot of ways, I think the U.S. is very good about requiring data disclosure, but we do not have really substantive disclosure required for infrastructure costs, for the completed costs. You know an awful lot about the bids, but we know much less about the final costs. So I think if you really wanted to change the system, the easiest and most substantive thing you could do would be to require those who spend money to publicly report the, the final completed costs. Do we see any differences between states? Because um, certainly states, you know, we mentioned NEPA, not to harp on that, but you know, there's different states have kind of their have kind of versions of that um, as well. So, is there a big difference to how much you know? Once you take into account, I suppose, you know, varying income levels, does it does it differ by region or state? We looked at that. There's so. I, I think to me, there is certainly variation by state and even variation by state when you control for the kind of geographic features that you think determine cost. And I think the best way to explain the extent of that variation is to say, if the 25th percentile state, if the, I'm sorry, if the 75th percentile state had spent like the 25th percentile state, we would have built the interstate for 40% less than we did. That's a, you know, that's a fair amount of savings. Yeah. Um, but we don't really have any great understanding, at least Zach and I don't, about what's driving that cross-sectional pattern across states. We do have this one really kind of odd and interesting finding, which is first, I think twofold. First, that there is a lot of variation in interstate spending per mile across states, much more than all than in lots of other types of public spending. So at first, when I when I was looking at this, I thought, oh, well, maybe, you know, these high interstate spending states, they're just also, you know, like they spend a lot of money in schools and I don't know, they spend a lot of money on other stuff too. But that's actually not true. <laughs> the variation in interstate spending per mile just swamps the variation in all kinds of other public per unit public spending. So that's one feature. The second thing is that the only kind of public spending with which we could find a really substantive relationship between interstate spending per mile across states is Medicare spending per capita. Ah, that's interesting. Which is just, it's weird. So when, for when I first presented this, I was getting looks like, what are you talking about? And I had to say, no, no, I, I don't think that old people, like, I don't think sick old people are going around causing expensive interstate. That's, that's a very powerful attack on the elderly. <laughs> Yeah, so I would say no, no, I don't. That's not that's not what I'm trying to say here. Um, but I think it's possible that the same kind of behavior that yields high Medicare spending may be the kind of behavior that yields high interstate spending. Possible. Let me then finish up with this one. You sort of addressed it, and it, uh, and I think universally guests hate when I ask this, so I make sure I ask it. <laughs> Again, uh, I'm not asking for a five point plan, but but uh, if. President Biden came to you and said, we're, we, want, we want to do all this stuff with infrastructure or, you know, we're going to build, build America back better, worry about costs, worry about delays. What would you advise? I would say, I think the politically feasible and, and yet powerful thing to do is to require cost reporting, final cost reporting. And I would say even interim cost reporting. Um, 
I think that's probably the best way to control costs um, is to make them public because now they are opaque. I think Congress a while ago asked the GAO to try and understand whether U.S. infrastructure spending was high. And as best I understand it, the GAO basically responded saying, well, we don't really know. There's not enough information on costs to even kind of understand this. So I think that's the, I think it's actually politically not too hard. I don't know. I'm not a politician. I'm an economist. But, you know, I think it's a lot easier to say you need to report your costs than to say, okay, when you have public comment in a project, the public comment period has to be limited. I think, like, would I suggest that? Yes. Does that seem politically feasible to me? No, no. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you that my uh, more conservative or you know libertarian listeners, they would answer that question I just asked you. It's like, hey, get get rid of NEPA. Um, you know, there you go. Let's go back. Let's roll roll these regulations back. But I know, uh, but you're wary of doing that. Yeah, I I guess from my point of view, there are substantial benefits from envi- environmental regulation, and that we wouldn't expect the government to take those benefits into account unless it is forced to. Um, and you know, that's not to say that every NEPA evaluation for every project is done right. Um, But one way to think about this is that, you know, at the beginning of the interstate highway system, the government just built freeways without taking into account citizen preferences at all. And that was too far an extreme in one direction. Now the government builds infrastructure, taking into account many people's preferences, maybe too many preferences and changing too many times for all these different preferences and maybe taking into account, um, you know, some kind of private benefits that probably shouldn't. So there's, there's, seems like there's some happy medium that we could get to somewhere in between these two polar opposite cases. My guest today has been Leah Brooks. Leah, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jim. (laughs) 